0: Welcome to Episode 188 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, And I want to start this uh, episode by reminding everybody that uh, a week from tomorrow, November 7, uh, we're having a live version of the Cyberlaw Podcast uh, here at Steptoe's offices near DuPont Circle. Just go to uh, the events page uh, at steptoe.com and uh, you can reserve a seat. Uh, We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government uh it's a big day but I couldn't figure out anything that was particularly cyber lawy about Manafort being charged <laughs> or uh, Papadopoulos being flipped. Uh, so um, uh we're going to move on to uh, uh more cyber topics. Uh, uh I'm going to be joined today by Chris Painter. Uh Chris uh, has been a friend and colleague uh, since the 90s at least maybe the 80s. Uh, um I, and Chris uh, was the former coordinator for cyber issues in in the office of the Secretary of state uh, of, at the State Department uh, and he will be talking about uh, what he thinks uh, has happened to the, the baby he created there
1: uh,
0: uh, so I'm looking okay. forward to that <laughs> uh, we also have with us for the roundup uh, Maury Schenk, uh, former managing partner in our London office who advises us still. On European technology and cybersecurity issues, Brian Egan is here. Uh, uh, he's an old colleague of Chris Painter's as well, because he was a legal advisor at the State Department and then before that at the National Security Council. Uh, in her debut at <laughs> the uh, Cyber Law Podcast, Alexis Early, a step to associate in our international regulation and compliance practice, welcome, Alexis.
2: Thank you, Stewart.
0: And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to stepped-out-of-practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to jump right in with actual cyber-related issues. Uh, CFIUS reform is suddenly in the air. Uh, uh, One of my partners said, I'll believe CFIUS reform is going to happen when CNN starts talking about it, but CNN has started talking about it. Uh, (laughs) Alexis, uh, what uh, uh, what is the... Uh, CFIUS reform bill meant to do?
2: Sure. So as you know, Stuart, CFIUS's job is to review inbound foreign investment for national security concerns. And historically, the committee's posture has been to try to get to yes by mitigating concerns and clearing deals. Under the Trump administration, there's been increased political scrutiny over CFIUS, especially with a number of uncleared China deals. And Senator Cornyn's Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act seems to echo many of those concerns. And really, this bill looks like Korn and staff surveyed China deals, picked everything they didn't like out of each one of them, and created legislative provisions to prohibit them from happening in the future. It's a a
0: very (laughs) uh, China-centric set of proposals, uh, and I think that probably reflects a a sense that uh, China presents a bigger challenge than Russia ever did. Uh, uh, And suddenly uh, uh, there's a concern that uh, Chinese intelligence collection, Chinese industrial policy is going to uh, have a big impact on our ability to continue to drag stuff out of the commercial sector and into the military sector.
2: And you're really seeing that in the scope of the bill um, and what it addresses, everything from really broadening the scope of what a covered transaction is, for example, making sure that any foreign investment really has to be purely passive if it doesn't want to be caught as a covered transaction out of concerns that foreign investors are making initial net investments and then making follow-on investments later that aren't being caught by the committee, which is something that I think they've had concerns about Chinese investors doing. Sort of
0: boiling the frog stuff.
2: <laughs> yes, and similarly, they really want to eliminate foreign investor access to U.S. critical technology, whether that's through clamping down on the joint venture safe harbor or really limiting how technology transfers can occur.
0: So, uh, Brian, I know you've been doing a lot of CFIUS work. I, uh, how big a deal is this?
3: I think it is it is a pretty big deal, actually. I think one, uh, for the reasons Alexis said, also there's a provision that would actually make part of the CFIUS process mandatory for the first time, right? Uh, until now, CFIUS has been entirely voluntary, at least well, that's yeah, what the it, committee says. Well, formally entirely <laughs> yes. voluntary. In uh, practice, but,
0: but, uh, you, you didn't dare reject the hints that you were
3: given. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but this would break the glass on those formalities, at least for some part uh, of uh, CFIUS's jurisdiction. Also, there's not there's been a lot of talk about whether CFIUS would create a list of countries of concern, mm-hmm. and this kind of tight ropes around that. There's no list, but the cities can consider c- countries of special concern. There's
0: no list, and China is not. <laughs> right. And although every provision <laughs> yeah. seems to be about
3: China, as you said. So, yeah, don't ask us for the list, but uh, you kind of get the it's sense a, who's on there. The
0: other thing that strikes me is this is potentially a big deal for is Silicon Valley, uh, for whom uh, um, the exit strategy of selling to the Chinese, or at least letting the Chinese in on the deal, has become you know, part of the regular toolbox. Uh- Uh, And this is um, a shot across the bow for Silicon Valley VC firms that says, uh, don't count on getting out of your uh, investments by selling off to Chinese companies.
3: That's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little skeptical of the idea that uh, companies even now could structure themselves around CFIUS in a way that would uh, give the investor control without triggering CFIUS's review. Right,
0: because there's an express provision in there that says, and if we didn't think of your structural plan... We've got an anti-evasion provision, exactly. and you just decide if it's an evasion, which means uh, if you don't like it, uh, it's still covered.
3: Right. Government wins on that, but this uh, gives the government even more tools, maybe that they haven't even asked for uh, in that regard.
0: All right. Um, on to our next uh, uh, story, which is... Um, Complaints. uh, This is uh, a part of my never-ending and apparently, uh, uh, and there's an unending supply of stories that demonstrate that uh, privacy is really about protecting powerful people and companies. Uh, Twitter uh, has destroyed and forced all the independent uh, researchers who were dependent on the uh, uh, Twitter feed to destroy uh, a lot of the Russian. Trolling uh, tweets because they said, well, the Russians went in and destroyed them, and we have a privacy policy that says um, when somebody destroys their tweets, then everybody has to destroy the tweets, including people who collected these public statements from us we 're now going to impose that <laughs> obligation on uh, on them, uh, which certainly makes it hard to you know yell at t- uh, Twitter over which uh, trolling Um, uh, tweets they allowed because nobody can find them anymore. Uh, It's just remarkable. Uh, I I was going to suggest that Twitter's privacy policy ought to have as its summary, good for you and better for us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We will see how that goes. Uh, But uh, uh, they they are blaming, among other things, the EU. They say, well, the EU makes us get rid of anything that we don't need anymore, and we're just making sure that policy <laughs> applies to the other people who uh, are processing data. So it uh, the source of all evil in data protection, it turns out, again, is the EU. Uh, and just in time to uh, uh, give us an update on the uh, axis of evil on data protection, uh, Maury, there's a lot of European exceptionalism going on uh in that field in the last week or two?
1: Yeah, well, uh, at least a lot has happened, and I feel exceptional. Um, In the um, weeks since I've been on the podcast, there's been at least three major developments. The first is at the beginning of October, the Article 29 Working Party, which is the College of European Data Protection Authorities, which will become the European Data Protection Board under GDPR, issued some guidelines on automated individual decision making and profiling, these have attracted a lot of attention in the tech sector, particularly with increased AI-based services. And the guidelines effectively say that purely automated decision making that has legal effects or other significant effects is prohibited, except for some uh, exceptions, if it's necessary for performance of a contract, if there's been consent by the individual, or if it's authorized by law. And the guidelines articulate various other restraints that apply even to uh, automated decision-making with some human intervention. So moving on, I'll give you quick summaries, and you can decide what you'd like to talk about, Stuart. But the second one is at the beginning of last week, one of the EU Advocate Generals, whose name is false, I believe. It's spelled like box, although I don't think he's a box, um, commented on a case involving... Uh, the Data Protection Authority in Schleswig-Holstein, which is a German state, um, involving a case about non-compliance by a small entity for having a Facebook page where it was said that they hadn't adequately, uh, communicated how information was being gathered and processed on that page. The court, uh, the advocate general has advised that the, suggested that the court should say two things. One is that both the small entity and Facebook can be responsible for this, and, and the Facebook entities that would be responsible would be would be the U.S. entity and the Irish entity. Even though even in, though in Germany they only have a marketing entity, that follows the, the rationale of the Google Spain right to be forgotten case, where there was a similar finding as to Google. The third big development is just at the end of last week the European Parliament approved the new e-privacy regulation. Like GDPR is going to uh, replace the data protection directive, the e-privacy uh, regulation will replace the e-privacy directive. It still now needs to go to negotiations between the Parliament and the EU Council that it's getting closer, and significantly, the current text is inconsistent with GDPR. It imposes for electronic communication services even more uh, significant privacy requirements. It's much heavier reliance on consent, where GDPR allows processing based on consent and a number of other grounds. So that's a lot of stuff that's happening.
0: So I, uh, uh, all of this, if I am right, uh, is sort of in that usual European netherworld of almost but not quite binding, uh, right? The uh, the e-privacy uh, uh, language that was approved by the Libé Committee uh, still has to be approved uh, uh, by Parliament and then has to be negotiated with the member states. And so, uh, you know, there's stuff in there that says, you know, once you put encryption on it, you can never uh, decrypt it, uh, which uh, I'm guessing... Uh, since the European Parliament has no law enforcement responsibilities, probably sounds okay to them, but is not going to sound particularly good to the, uh, the member states. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, action still to, uh, uh there, isn't there?
1: Well, you're right. Um, the Parliament has approved it. The Leaving Committee approved it on the 19th of ah. October, and then in late breaking news, Parliament, right at the end of last week, approved it. But you're right, it still does need to be negotiated with the Council, with the member states. Although it's gotten this far with uh, the heightened consent requirement, so I'm not sure that they're going to be taken out.
0: Okay. Uh, um, and I, I, I don't know, uh, uh, Brian, if you looked at this, I was struck by the automated automated uh, data processing. Uh, you know, you can't do bad things to people if you're just a machine. You're not allowed to do that. There has to be a, a human being. It, it sounded very uh, uh, kind of luddite um, and then when they finished writing the report you said i don't actually know what this means except that uh if it uh if it sounds bad to uh, the average european socialist then it's probably illegal uh, uh but there was it was very hard to to find principles in their discussion of automated uh automated decision making
3: yeah, I mean, it, it struck me as a pretty. It's the negotiating mandate, so I guess it, that's one explanation for why it, it doesn't read as a law hopefully would someday. But this is GDPR, right? So this is GDPR language, so it will, it, it would be binding. It is binding.
0: It was always one of these weird things. It's been in the uh, directives for a long time and nobody knew what it meant. Now, uh, they've seized on it to say, mm-hmm. "Oh, well, this is about regulating ai I guess
3: it, but but still, it strikes me that when when you hit the uh, pedal to the metal it's somebody's going to have to explain or at least implement this in a way that tech companies and others who operate in this space can understand Well, you
0: would think so, but they, they, uh, my sense is the data protection authorities are quite comfortable with laws that that basically mean if we get mad at you, you're mm-hmm. guilty." Uh, and this is just another one of those. If you use AI and they get mad at you, Mm -hmm. you're guilty Uh, because there's no distinction that can really Mm be... derived from all this fog of words that they've that the article 29 working party has put out
3: i mean that that does seem like the type of thing though that uh, in the negotiations with the council that are coming up that yeah. there will be others other stakeholders at the table that may not have the same view that you uh ascribe to the uh privacy folks uh chris painter yeah i i can jump in there too because what i've seen in
4: many many years of looking at the eu grapple with data privacy uh is that much like a lot of other countries, including our own? Sometimes they don't really have all the stakeholders at the table, and it's a very stove-piped approach right. where the law enforcement and security people are not really—I mean, there there are some that happen, but. Most of the time, it doesn't happen, and so you have this approach where you have the data privacy purists come up with something that may not be workable for these other areas. Uh, and even with industry consultations, it's better than it was, but it's not great. So hopefully, at the council, you get these other interests that are represented. Yeah.
3: yeah the, the press reports of the industry consultations are uh, just that. The those consultations are inherently evil, by the way. That this was <laughs> yes. evil lobbyists uh, from the United States on behalf of U.S. tech firms who are muddying up the waters. Well, and those those lobbyists are not going to say.
0: It. Word one about the value of being able to decrypt uh, for law enforcement purposes uh, the encryption that they've designed to defeat law enforcement.
4: Well, and I think that the two other things that is a little bit of worry, too. One is that whatever the EU ends up with ends up more and more becoming a global default because, you know, obviously we have a safe harbor agreement. But around the world, other countries are saying, well, we want to do business with the EU, and so they want to adopt this. And so it becomes much more than just the EU. And then you have the complication of how things like the new information uh, network information directive work with this. And so it gets even broader applications. So I think those are going to be things that are going to be at least exacerbators going forward. At
0: least until somebody takes me up on my offer to pro bono represent them with their claim that uh, uh, China – does not meet uh, european uh, europe 's exalted uh, protection of human rights standards, uh, and therefore no data can be exported to uh, uh, to China or for that matter Russia or Saudi Arabia or Algeria or anybody else they do business with other than the United States that they 've never bothered to uh, um, bring an action against uh, so i 'm looking forward to that, uh, and only when that happens will I believe that this standard is truly global because beating up the Argentines and the Canadians does not uh, all right, Pfizer. Um, uh, speaking of uh, uh, living up to uh, uh, bizarre notions of human rights, uh, um, everybody and his dog has a Pfizer reform uh, uh, bill. I, uh, Brian, I, this is this is pretty remarkable. I thought the House Judiciary Act um, proposal was nutty. Until I read the Ron Wyden Ron Paul uh, you know bipartisan extremist bill, uh, um, which basically would say about seven oh two uh, that uh, you can't do any searches of the database for an American without uh, uh, mm-hmm. probable cause and a warrant, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and which says about about collection. Uh, nope, never, uh, you know, you had your chance, you decided you couldn't uh, meet the standards, you'll never get a chance to meet uh, the FISA court standards again. Um, and then the Intelligence Committee, uh, short version of that, I think is, um, I, I, I think of that as kind of tweakville. Uh, they, to their credit, do not uh, say, well, since NSA is not doing about collection, We'll never let anybody do it again, even though NSA said they were giving up some valuable intelligence and hoped to be able to meet the FISA court's uh, procedural requirements mm-hmm. for searching the database mm-hmm. at a later time. This time they say, if you come up with that solution and you want to restart FISA, uh, uh, your about collection, uh, first go to the FISA court, get them to tell you it's okay, right. then uh, come to the committee's, tell Congress that you're intending to uh, stand up your about collection
3: and give us 30 days to say no. (laughs) This reminds me of, uh, I think it was Justice Brandeis who talked about the laboratories of government in the states. Here we have the laboratories of government within the various committees of Congress, uh, where um, I think when the dust settles, uh, or at least as it's settled to date, the House Judiciary Bill, which was the first mover, is going to be somewhere in the middle between the intelligence committees and the Wyden-Paul bill. And
0: I think that's that was clearly what Wyden-Paul wanted to do. They they said, well, we can run to the left or whatever or the crazy uh, the crazy side of this bill, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, and that will make it at least more likely mm-hmm. that the House Judiciary Bill survives the. Uh, uh, the whittling away that clearly Senate Intelligence and probably House Intelligence want to do.
3: That's right. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, there's also the reality that this program expires at the end of this calendar year. Somebody's gotta pass something. I know I,
0: actually, the more, the more flowers that bloom here, the more it starts to look like people just say, I tell you what, how about we just roll it over? Uh, we'll roll it over for two years and think about it in a couple of years. I, I'm not sure that's a, a victory for anybody in particular, because uh, taking a really important intelligence program and putting it on life support like that is not going to uh, lead to intelligence breakthroughs, but um, it may be better than, it's certainly better than the uh, bipartisan, uh, you know, uh, crazy extremist uh, uh, bill, which yeah, I, what I, I was pleased to see is HR 1997 in a visible reminder that this is a pre nine eleven bill, um, a, 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 the one thing I wanted to talk about briefly is the the way the Senate Intelligence Bill tries to straddle mm-hmm. seven hundred two database mm-hmm. searches by the FBI because mm-hmm. um, they came up with a solution that could have been really clever. Certainly, is sort of a middle ground, but I suspect. It's going to turn out to be kind of dumb. Uh, If I read it right, they said, you, the FBI, can search all this stuff for law enforcement purposes, go right ahead, but within 24 hours, you've got to take your search, if you get a hit, you've got to take your search to the FISA court, and then within two days, the FISA court has to say whether it's legal. And of course, the FISA court has already said that those searches are legal, so it's kind of... Uh, seems like a, a rubber stamp, but mm-hmm. uh, 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 but the idea that every search is going to get reviewed by the FISA court mm-hmm. um, means that you're just going to have, I, I fear, um, lawyers wanting to see what searches are being done so that they don't have to defend mm-hmm. a pig in a poke, uh, which means that the, instead of just typing stuff in to see if there's a, a terrorist connection, you're going to have to go through the lawyers, the mm-hmm. FBI general counsel or NSD, the Justice Department, or NSA, uh, and they're going to say, okay, well, t- tell me why you want to do this, uh, Send it to me in advance of your search, which means um, all of the searches, not just the ones that have hits, will have to be justified with little paperwork requirements and check off from, uh, you know, a variety of self-appointed or um, legislatively appointed uh, guardians of civil liberties. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, a lot of people are just going to say, ah, yeah, yes, screw it. I,
3: I, I don't need to do that search. <laughs> Well, as a lawyer formerly in that type of position, I'm not sure that that would be a terrible thing at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> but you, gotta, uh, you gotta have something to do. I, I
0: realize that. Uh, but,
3: uh, I also wonder, though, if that just, this kind of gets at something we talked about before, which is the FBI's apparent failure to identify its use of these databases in certain circumstances that you have, even the intelligence committees kind of say, scratching their heads and saying, you know what, we're not sure that that's an uh, appropriate, well, we just don't know when we're using the data and when we're querying it solution uh, to the problem. I,
0: I'm, I'm sure what, what senator burr was thinking is this lets everybody do the searches um which was the principal concern of the fbi and then it puts some uh veneer of lawfulness analysis and it doesn't change the standard which is what was wrong with the house intelligence or the house judiciary bill which said it has to be probable cause and uh, it 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 takes us to the court, and the court says, yeah, like we told you like 6,000 times already, this is legal too. <laughs> uh, and um, eh, and so they probably thought, well, it's probably harmless. But, boy, it feels like a, a, a major paperwork uh, uh, problem in the offing. And, frankly, you know, I don't trust the FISA court. Not to say, hey, you know, Fourth Amendment requires the search be reasonable, and we've decided that this one search here, because we don't like what you were doing, or or the 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 justification doesn't seem very specific. We don't think that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to say? I I, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that the court um, is going to be able to resist that temptation.
3: But on the other hand, though, if you're if you're right that this is uh, that this the 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 court is going to look at things that are already determined to be lawful. If part of the concern out there is they think people think that the FBI is using this data for you know to uh, <coughs> tax evasion or jaywalking or right. other things. This might be a way to assuage that concern without doing much harm to the national security. program. I'm sure
0: that's what they were thinking. I, and and I, I will say it is probably better than the House bill. Um, but I think we're gonna the fact that it wasn't very. It made no appearance until it was in the committee draft, if I remember right. (laughs) Uh, It wasn't discussed much. Uh, I think we're going to end up uh, um, regretting it at leisure if it gets uh, adopted. Uh, uh, All right. um, uh, Quick hits. The FBI is now saying that half of the phones that they uh, want to look at, uh, they're defeated by encryption. That's a Big new number and and uh, means that this issue isn't going to go away. Uh, Microsoft has embraced a new DOJ policy. DOJ said um, before you just impose a gag order on uh, uh, the uh, uh, on uh, Microsoft and Hotmail searches or Google and Gmail searches, think hard about whether you really need it. And Microsoft said, oh, that's the excuse we need to drop our lawsuit, and they did. Uh, uh, So they are no longer suing, uh, claiming they have a First Amendment right to break the gag order. Um, The the last thing I wanted to talk about briefly, and I don't know, uh, Chris, whether you want to get into this or not, is Kaspersky. uh, Kaspersky has written a really interesting report. Uh, which they described as kind of an internal investigation of what they did and didn't do. Um, and it, uh, my sense is that it is designed at least in part to embarrass the U.S. government. Uh, and, and some of the stuff uh, is, is pretty embarrassing, especially if you're the, uh, I guess I'll call him the idiot, who uh, installed Kaspersky on a computer that also had uh, tools stolen from the U.S. government by somebody who was authorized to use them inside the fence but not outside the fence and was using them on outside the fence with Kaspersky to protect them, uh, and then apparently uh, downloading um, pirated versions of Microsoft products uh, uh, that came complete with malware and backdoors themselves. Uh, I, and so um, this... This guy looks terrible. Um, but they also say in a few cases, they say, you know, what we also discovered is that uh, uh, some of this malware that uh, was, you know, that we associate with the equation group um, is running on other machines inside the United States which I think is their way of saying, oh, you know, red alert, red alert, uh, calling Senator Paul, calling Senator Paul, something happening in the United States that NSA is doing, um, a, that has not made a lot of headlines. But I, uh, I thought it was clearly put in there as a way of trying to shift the attention back to the U.S. government and away from Kaspersky. Yeah. Okay, you don't have to comment on that <laughs> at all, I, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating read, and I, I recommend it to you. All right, uh, the, uh, let's turn to uh, our interview uh, with Chris Painter. Chris uh, uh, actually stood up the uh, uh, Office for Cyber uh, at the State Department, uh, um, and you were an ambassador, if I remember, weren't you?
4: Well, I was a I was a coordinator, Coordinator, so it was was similar. It was an assistant secretary rank essentially. So,
0: I and um, well, let me let me start with a tour of what you think the office. Did uh, and where those efforts are now. So uh, uh, you s- started it to give new focus to cyber issues, and God knows we needed it. Uh, um, where do you
4: think it had its biggest impact? So in a number of ways. F- first, before that. Uh, just like our own government, more generally, there were lots of different pockets within the State Department doing lots of different things. Some effectively, some very stovepipe, some not very communicating with other parts of the department, sort of a model for the rest of our government at times, right. too. Uh, and that really wasn't upping our game or being effective. And there were certain areas where we really weren't showing leadership in the world. So one of the biggest things I think it did was, uh, was bringing all this together at a high level within the secretary's office and signaling both to our own government – and to all the governments around the world, including our adversaries and our friends, that this is an important issue, particularly the security aspects of it. But not just the security aspects, because all of these things are interrelated: the economic aspects, the human rights aspects, the security aspects have an interrelation. But particularly with security, we need to do more, and we really need to up our game, both within our own interagency and around the world. So that was the primary reason to do it. We, you know, I and, remember- and actually, I would say. You know, before this office was created,
0: uh, for 25 years, um, the computer crime section at Justice was effectively the government's um, uh, think tank and international uh, negotiator on these issues, uh, and it, it, they couldn't carry that forever as right. the stakes got higher, but uh, you were at CSIPS yeah, before I, that.
4: Look, and I think uh, CSIPS uh, does and did a wonderful job, particularly on the cyber crime aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you get into some of the more cybersecurity or international security, including you know cyber operations and those issues that's not really ceasive saying right. it's not really that and, and but you know they're very very good and continue to be really strong players just like other parts of our government are strong players but Again, melding them all together, both in the department, but within the interagency was important. And of course, that gave rise to the international strategy that was done back in 2011, which was, as I've often said, you know, we convened the group. It was about 16 different agencies who all had their different ways of speaking. And it was like creative cacophony. And just the process of writing that thing brought the government closer together, which mm-hmm. I, I think is important. So, so that, that aspect was important. Uh, you know, on a on a procedural level, really mainstreaming this issue within the department, making sure that every single functional and regional bureau cared about this issue, which wasn't true before, was important. Getting a cadre of cyber uh, diplomats in embassies around the world, that was important. Uh, but uh, starting dialogues with other countries, uh, we were the first office of our kind anywhere in the world in the foreign ministry. There are now 25 of them including countries like Russia and China, but also virtually every one of our allies. And new ones are coming on board all the time. Australia just appointed a cyber ambassador about two months ago. Uh, And that's important because there are important technical issues in this space, there are important law enforcement issues, there are important DOD issues. But the policy issues, whether it be at the White House and and, uh, Prime Minister or President's office, or the foreign policy issues, weren't getting the attention they need. And these are not just technical issues, Stuart, as you well know. These are core issues of national security and economic security uh, and foreign policy. And so that attention was important. More practically, I think some of the big things that were done uh, were things like trying to get uh, a more cohesive gang of countries uh, to build up a collective uh, approach to some of the cyber threats. So when we had the denial of service attacks against financial institutions, one of the things I did was call 20 of my counterparts where these botnets were located and said, can you help us? Can you? We did a diplomatic demarche, which so I, me, I always me, thought was let me a bad thing. Let me push action. on that because yeah. I
0: think that was a complete failure.
4: I, I do we,
0: we didn't stop the attacks.
4: We we set, sent a bunch, bunch of demarches around, and people did what they wanted to do. Right so Now I think what happened is in some of the major countries where those bots were, and those could shift over time, we told those countries, look, whatever tools you have, including how you deal with their ISPs, try to mitigate this. Is that the whole solution? Absolutely not. But frankly, it had more effect than all the other solutions we were pursuing, including the technical ones. <laughs> and so that's that's an important aspect. It's one tool in our toolkit. If we don't use that tool, we're idiots. So we need to bring all those tools to We bear. could
0: We could have launched a worm that would have patched those DDoS. Machines.
4: Yeah, and how long would that have lasted? I mean, there there is this magic button on using cyber tools. How long would that have lasted? What would have been the second order consequences if we did that? And how easy it is it to reconstitute that, like in 10 minutes, and you don't have visibility into it? So... So I think people always think of the cyber tools right. as this magic button that's an important tool. We need that tool too, but that's not the only tool we have or we should use. But it, it, we, we we couldn't use it if
0: we were saying, oh, please, please, Mr. Myanmar, would you uh, uh, take down these uh, bots?
4: No, look, we, one of the things I think that, that we've talked about too, and this goes to the, some of the attribution issues, is you can go to countries and say do something, and if they don't do something – then you could say, well, look, we have to do it. We have to do it, you know, and that could be the wave of the future. That could be something where we could be much more pointed in some of these areas. So that was one. The China agreement uh, was, I think, an important milestone. Not, well, that was a big deal. Not necessarily because the Chinese are going to completely comply with that. I wasn't born yesterday. Right. But the fact is it creates a level of accountability and really created an international norm. And we got that in the G20 and others. The The international security work um and there's two aspects of that there's international law applying or three there's norms there's there's uh, voluntary norms there's uh confidence building measures this being the US being on the front line of advancing that framework is important but the key thing about that is you know you and I've talked about this a lot, a lot. Norms themselves are not enough. You also then have to take it to the next step and figure out how you enforce those against transgressors. And so that's what some of the activity now. So all those things, I think, were pretty critically important. We also had, you know, just like our government stovepipe, Japan, others are very stovepipe. We had whole of government dialogues. We brought everyone to the table. They brought everyone to the table. And so That actually made you have a good conversation when we had DOD there and Commerce and the whole bunch of folks. That was that was very helpful. So So,
3: you you talked about
0: like-minded countries, and I agree with you. When we're not we're not likely to get the Russians and the uh, Chinese to agree with our views on uh, what should and should not be done. Uh, um, eh, Who are the countries putting aside the other big English-speaking countries uh, that you would say
4: are? with us as like-minded countries. So, I, you know, I think you can have a, a fairly big tent like-minded group, and you don't have to be like-minded for all purposes. Mm-hmm. I and mean, one of the things that, that we've been talking about, I've been talking about too, is you don't need every, you don't need uh, a system where you have every country who's like-minded with you in responding to a threat, for instance. So you could have a smaller collection. You could have smaller collections depending on what the threat is. Uh, certainly, you know, the Five i countries are there. A lot of the European countries, I think, are there. Uh, More and more so.
0: Which of the European countries? I think, I think,
4: I think Germany, I think France increasingly, Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's been interesting developments in even the EU with this new toolkit, diplomatic toolkit Mm -hmm. they came out with, which talks about sanctions and other issues they could do. Uh, You know, the Nordic, the Nordic and Baltic countries are very strong, I think, uh, you know, some of the South American countries are now, I think, waking up to this. Argentina and Chile and, and others, they're, they're starting to pay attention. Australia certainly is part of the Five Eyes. But Japan and, and uh, Korea, I think these are all, you know, key countries. And, and, you know, frankly, we should not be afraid to reach out to countries. And we have, like India, for instance, where we reached the first kind of bilateral agreement in cyber at a high level with India just about a year and a half ago. Uh, or Brazil. I mean, the, you know, the, these countries don't agree with us on everything. But that's okay. If we can we can cultivate them for the things that we do agree with, that's important.
3: So well, go ahead. You also uh, you, you you put aside China and Russia at the beginning, but you actually did come to some yeah. agreements, even with them, on limited topics. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, you know, I, I think it's
4: we should not avoid talking to the the folks that are either frenemies or adversaries, right? Uh, Within reason. I mean, we have to have a clear idea of what we're trying to achieve, and we're trying to achieve that. And we have to understand what they're trying to achieve. And there are some areas where we're never going to come to common ground. But where we have a common interest, like for instance, a norm about not attacking critical infrastructure, right. you know, there's common interests there. But is, uh, you know, there, there are other things where if you're trying to control cyberspace and control content, we're not going to agree. Uh, so it's understanding that, and, this, and if you can get them to agree something, that again creates that level of accountability like in the China-US agreement
0: so uh one of the things that that i 'm struck by is that uh, I, we uh, the State Department was an enthusiastic supporter of things like Twitter and uh, Facebook as a way of encouraging the color revolutions as a way of spreading democracy. The assumption was these tools are inherently. Um, pro democracy pro western uh, uh and that's how we got the arab spring the trump the uh, trump, uh, the, um, uh the putin administration saw that and saw you know believed that we in fact were using twitter and facebook uh, as part of a uh an effort to westernize and democratize uh, and deputinize russia um, and i think there's a reasonable argument that our effort to sell these tools as inherently anti-autocracy uh anti-putin um is what led him to say you know wow you want to
4: see what i can do with those tools because i can do a whole lot of stuff that you won't really like look i i don't i don't know and i don't really think there was that causal connection i think certainly this is not new this predates the internet where Russia and China are so concerned about stability that anything including things like radio for Europe, anything that uh, that goes to some of these content issues that they don't like mm-hmm. uh, is a threat. And so that's not different. I, the, the fact that you know the Russians used that kind of, those kind of tools and others to try to influence our our election, you know I think was something we weren't really looking for we weren't really prepared for uh, but something that's incredibly serious. Do you think that um, there is a basis
0: for agreement, and, sh- and should the U.S. consider it, in which we say, I-, I tell you what, you don't screw with our election or try to propagandize our folks and we won't try to propagand- uh, propagandize yours? So I,
4: I, I, th- I worry about what definitions mean there, right? Right. So there is th- there is free speech and there's the ability to for political discourse, and that should be maintained. This is different. this is manipulation, and this is like under the scenes manipulation and so you know I think it it's hard to kind of definitionally reach into what you what you're trying to do without impinging on free speech and political discourse, which of course we want right
0: so uh g g e uh that famously uh that u n process has more yeah. or less collapsed uh, Uh, Why do you think that happened, and is that a a bad thing?
4: So, look, I think we've had a lot of progress in the GG in 2013 and 2015. We got good reports. We had the applicability of international law, which was not a given at the time. We had uh, an agreement on some of the norms and some confidence buildings, important. Uh, but I think it reached a natural breaking point, first, because it was a larger group of countries, 25 versus 20, and the crucible effect is lost at that point. Second, I think Russia, frankly, had less reason to want to reach a consensus because of all the stuff that's gone on. And, and China dug, dug in its heels in terms of how international law applies. Is that necessarily a bad thing? No, it just means we shift to other venues now. The, the core things I think we need to do is get other countries beyond that small group of countries to endorse these norms, to endorse international law, to make progress there. It's not debilitating we're able to reach progress there. You know, it, it, it happens. So now we need to do things regionally. We need to do things bilaterally. We need to do things in smaller groups. And we also need to think about how you know countries react to transgressions, how you do deterrence in cyber What Do you think of the G20 effort to, say, uh, one of the
0: norms we want to enforce is not screwing with the integrity of financial institution data, um, eh, because we all depend on the financial system, even the Russians and the Chinese.
4: Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting idea. Obviously, it all comes down to you know the rubber meets the road when you actually word something and what that actually what the wording is. But I think that's very an interesting idea. It's one of the critical infrastructures we're worried about. Um, so
0: let me ask about you know the. Uh, uh the dirty the dirty laundry part of uh uh policy making which is the organization and turf issues uh the uh, uh secretary uh, the secretary <laughs> of state uh, has said uh, he wants to reorganize the state department uh, in a you know a, a pretty slow moving reorganization uh, but one of the things that he wants to do and probably at the instance of the old Foreign Service hands, as much as anybody, is get rid of as many special purpose offices as he can and jam everybody who used to be special purpose into a uh, more streamlined um, uh, organizational structure. And um, that means getting rid of or shoving your office into a um, uh, smaller uh, and more stovepiped uh, uh, process. Uh, how good or bad an idea is this? And um, what would you do to address the concerns that the, the State Department officials have about not wanting to have multiple uh, special
4: purpose offices. Yeah, look, if it stays the way it is now, it's a mistake. It's just flat line. It, it, it makes it much harder to be effective in that role. It lowers the level. It's and when you say w- 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 w-
0: the way it is now, well, I it's, mean, it's shoved into an EB or economic right. bureau uh, uh, hierarchy along with the people who do ITU right. negotiations. Right?
4: Yeah, and I'd say there are several reasons for that. I mean, one is it is shoved in the hierarchy instead of making it cross cutting and trying to get the entire department up to speed on this and mainstreaming it you're putting it in one chain and you know and some issues are economic fine but would you go to an assistant secretary for economic affairs to ask them about cyber operations would you go there to ask them about some of the core security issues it's nuts you know it doesn't make any sense uh so you're still piping it in a way where it gives a voice to some issues, but it, it restricts your ability to get the full understanding and voice on others. The other thing is that it, it moves it down a couple of levels. So, you know, I was reporting directly to the secretary as it currently is constituted. It's a DAS level reporting to assistant secretary reports under an undersecretary. And so that buries it in the hierarchy. You know, I dispute a
3: little bit. I agree. Oh, well, that luckily, Chris, you know, half of those officials aren't actually in place. But, but, you know, I,
4: I think the interesting thing is, uh, look, every, or every administration can be organized. Every secretary can be organized. And I think it is true that there were many of these special envoys that were overlapping with what regional bureaus did, and with what functional bureaus did. I think we were different. There must have been think,
0: 40 people who were in charge of Afghanistan. Yeah, so, I mean,
4: we, we were creating a new area, and one of the core things we try to do is enlist all of the different regional bureaus. They did regional strategies. We tried to make it this departmental effort, not like us. It's us against you. It's all of us together. And so there are models like that that work. But even if you decide to, to change that, you know, putting it in the chain it is, putting it at that level, uh, I think really does hurt it, and it sends a signal both to our friends and our enemies around the world, Will take advantage of this. And I think that's not where we need to be, given the threats certainly are bigger than they were six years ago. And my office is great in storage, so it's hard to say you're going to now make this at a lower level. Uh, so, and then the last thing I'd say is look, um, those two jobs are full time jobs. Uh, the job in the Economic Bureau deals with ITU stuff, God love them, they do it. it you know, that that is a full time job. And if you're going to do that and talk about those issues and do all the security and other issues, it's hard for one person to, to amalgamate that and give it all full voice. So, so yeah, maybe it won't stay that way. I, I know um, Deputy Secretary Sullivan recently said that this is the first step into elevating it. Okay. You know, call me crazy and old-fashioned, but I tend to like gather the facts first and make decisions later. But you know, we'll see, we'll see, and maybe that that will happen. And I certainly hope it does because there's been a lot of. Interest in the Hill and really, uh, you know, around the community that this needs to be something. Simple. Is there a,
0: a, for a while? There was some suggestion that the the Hill might say no, you can't reorganize that office away. Do you think that's uh, um, kind of gone by the boards now?
4: I don't know that it's gone by the boards. I'm not an expert in the legislative process. I'm not even sure people were there. Often are, right. but I'd say um, you know there is this uh, Royce Engels bill, the uh, bipartisan bill out of House Foreign Affairs, which I think is quite good, which would. Elevate it to at least a level where it's reporting directly in their case to at least, uh, the undersecretary for political affairs, which is cross-cutting. Right. Not, you know, one yeah, yeah. chain. Uh, at least it could be higher. Um, I think that's not a bad approach. I mean, you know, you, you even if you don't have a special envoy, there are other models where you, you're
3: allowed, you give this the kind of power and the, uh, the stature that it needs. I think part of the problem on the legislative side too is that Unlike the Defense Department, the State Department has not had a regular authorization bill for over a decade. Right, uh, forever. Where DOD, if they need a reorganization that needs congressional approval, they've got a process. They've got a bipartisan process. It more or less works. State Department has no process, and I think that's part of the reason you have all these special envoys and offices is that Secretaries of State say, Well, I need Chris Painter right. to report to me. There's no congressional alternative, so, so I'll just do it. So I'm going to do yeah. it. And,
4: and look, this has been, and Stuart, you and I have talked about this before. This area, I think, is unique because it's largely nonpartisan. Both party are bipartisan. Both parties care about this issue. Mm-hmm. They may have different little uh, approaches on different things. But they care about this and they care about the foreign policy. I I would say everyone, both on the Senate and the House side, have dealt with from both sides of the aisle, really think this is an important issue, particularly now when we're facing greater threats than we ever have before. It's not the only part of the solution in the government we need, but it's an important part of it.
0: So last last set of topics, Um, the – uh, the Trump administration came in and said, we're going to assign a whole bunch of homework to the interagency process uh, uh, on cybersecurity issues. Uh, uh, each agency is supposed to say, here's my plan, here's the risks I'm taking, here's what I'm doing to mitigate them. Uh, if uh, if I fail, you can fire me. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, DHS and to some extent uh, DOD and uh, state have been asked to produce reports. I think state's principal responsibility was to come up with a list of deterrence uh, uh, methods. Uh, and... You know there is a perception that we have lacked a deterrence strategy. I fear that we didn 't lack a deterrence strategy, but that we had uh, we took a look at deterrence and decided that we were deterred um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, i what 's your sense about how that process has gone? Do you think we 're going to end up with a better Set of deterrence options than we had in the Obama administration.
4: Yeah. Well, first, I think these, these reports uh, were helpful in focusing, you know, after we did our last international strategy in, in 2011. And, and these are much more, uh, whole of government approaches. So even with deterrence or even the international strategy, although the state wrote the international strategy, it had, you know, reports from all the different agencies to try to amalgamate and think about that. On the deterrence strategy, you know, state played a big role, but it was, again, a multi-agency mm-hmm. effort, so it wasn't exclusively looking at state tools. I think we have to become much better at deterrence. I, I do not think we've done a good enough job deterring. And I think part of that is a factor of our tool set is not that great. You know, here's the tools we have. We have diplomacy. We have economic tools like sanctions. Uh, we have law enforcement indictments. Uh, We have cyber tools, which, again, I think people overrate. We have kinetic tools, which you're not going to use for most cyber events. That's not a great tool set. That's not enough. And so two things occur to me that we need to do. One is develop more tools. Uh, And that requires effort. And it's not just a government effort, but it's working with other governments and also with the private sector and others. And the other is figuring out, you know, we've got to get better at imposing these costs. And that means to me a couple of things. One, Attribution, we've got to be more willing to pull attribution is a political issue uh, right. at the end of the day. We need to be more willing to do things. Deterrence, as you know, Stuart, there's two components credible response and timeliness. We need to do both of those yeah. things. And, and and I think we, we need to, and we're not timely. We are not timely, and we need to do that. And so, I think developing the tools and then starting to work with other countries, so you can then do this small group. Again, doesn't have to be formal, and it shouldn't be formal. Small group countries who can impose these consequences on bad actors, which is more powerful than anyone doing it alone. We'll do it alone if we have to, but it's better if we can get a group to do it. That's where the future lies in deterring some of this conduct. Will that be perfect? No, but there's a lot of running room
0: there. I I, I I think you're you're not wrong, and I it I have said multiple uh, on multiple occasions that. Um, Worrying about sources and methods when they are the result of computer intrusions ought to be rethought because telling people, oh, by the way, we're in your computer and we saw what you did, uh, does not mean that they can keep us out because we know that they were in OPM's computer and that didn't uh, allow us to keep them out. I, just knowing that this comes from the Russians computers or the Chinese computers or North Korean computers does not mean that we are fatally compromising a a source or method. It's, you know, you got to do it carefully. You don't
4: even have to do this publicly. I mean, you can can go back to the adversary and you can say, we are doing this to you. It's going to cause you pain. We'll stop doing this when you change your ways. Uh, That's what classic deterrence Mm -hmm. looks like. You know, we're not even close to that right now in cyberspace, but I do think there's a lot of thinking and effort to to get better in this so area. So let
0: right me now. ask you a question. The, the North Koreans are famously doing a lot of their activity out of hotels in third countries, China, uh, uh, Malaysia, I think, uh, um That strikes me as classic uh, unable or unwilling uh, analysis. Uh, Why don't we turn off the power in those, those hotels?
4: So I think one of the things you could do, and one of the things I think, again, you could do a better job of, because countries, even countries like China, they don't want... They don't want third parties operate They may do their own things. They don't want third parties operating in their country. Well, you could
3: have fooled that, me. <laughs> well, I mean, if it doesn't.
4: It, it's worrisome for their own stability. It's worrisome for them getting blamed. So I think there's a lot more running room to get cooperation from those countries to go against those kind of actors. I think that's absolutely true because they're beginning to see this is actually hurting their own interests. So, so I'd say there. Now, you know, you could also think about attribution in this sense, and this is a little harder. There's lots of legal issues and other issues with that. Is, as you're right, you see something emanating from a country, and you go to them and you say, hey, do something, and they either say, we're not, or they just can't, and then you say, look, we got to do something to, to do that. There's lots of complications. I'm not saying that's the answer, but I think that's one thing we need to think more seriously about, and 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 working with other countries to kind of communicate. I, that.
0: You know, the, the, one of the responses to you don't like having us do this on your soil, well, then you shouldn't be letting other people do things right. to us on your.
4: But soil. you know, uh, payback is a whatever you can say on this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> but uh, yes. but you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes from the U.S., right? And so we will take criminal action against it. But are we, you know, and we have said. For instance, in the denial of service case, you come to us and you ask us, we will try to mitigate it, either technical or law enforcement means. And that's the norm that we're trying to get other countries really to adopt. And if they don't, you know, I think we have to figure out how to pressure them, not just using the cyber tools. One of the big problems in the cyber community, I think, is we think in cyber Right. This has got to be far broader. The reason we got traction with the Chinese, in my view, is that we made it not just a security and cybersecurity issue, we made it an economic issue. And we made it a core part of our engagement with them.
0: So, uh, last question. Uh, what are you gonna do next?
4: That's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've now left the, uh, the warm or cold or whatever embrace <laughs> of the U.S. government and now I'm beginning to think, uh, just, uh, uh, in the last few days, uh, and I'm now beginning to think about what to do next. Uh, and I want to take some time, but you know I'm a recovering lawyer, so that's a possibility. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, you know, a
0: recovering diplomat. recovering <laughs>
4: diplomat. Um, I'm obviously going to stay in the in the uh, the area of cyber instead of like owning a vineyard, which I probably really like to do. <laughs>
0: I I, well, you know, I wouldn't go to Napa. <laughs> yeah, well, not now,
4: but but I think, um, uh, look, I think this is. I often had said that cyber is a new black now, and I think it is. I think there are, there's a lot out there. There's a lot more that can be done uh not just from a government purge and so I want I look forward to doing
0: that. All right. Well if you're if you're looking for a speaker for your next public event, you've now gotten a half hour uh free sample uh and uh, uh I hope Chris will uh, charge a pretty penny for the next <laughs> sample that he gives you. Uh, so You'll get <laughs>
4: jokes then, jokes
0: then. <laughs> Chris thanks very much. Uh also thanks to Maury Shank, Brian Egan, Alexis Early who did well with her first uh, uh debut here. Uh this has been episode one hundred eighty eight of the cyber law podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson I should say um, we have we aim at doing a news roundup and an interview uh, but scheduling sometimes you just have to kind of say yes when somebody says I'm available so we uh, we've already re- released a bonus uh, episode of my interview uh, with Tom Bossert. Uh, I, I expect we'll have at least one and maybe two more bonus episodes this week god help us uh, so <laughs> i we are not spamming you i swear to god and i don't think we have more than that i uh, uh planned uh, uh and there'll be good ones uh one with uh, representative graves who is a proponent of hacking back that should be fun uh, i and uh, uh one with rachel brand uh, who's the number 3 um, official at uh, the justice department and a former member of the President's uh, uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties uh, Oversight Board, uh, very familiar with Section 702, and I expect she'll have a lot to say about Section 702 um, and the uh, uh, weird goings-on on on the Hill. So, uh, don't forget, if you've got other suggestions, ideally one a week, uh, uh for people that we're gonna interview uh send us uh, uh your suggestion at CyberlawPodcast at steptow dot com uh, and we will send you a highly coveted cyberlaw podcast mug of the sort that Chris Painter is already uh, uh fondling uh, <laughs> uh, at his uh, seat. Uh uh Coming up, I uh, already scheduled Mike Sulmeyer of the Belfer Center uh, Cybersecurity Project, David Ignatius, who's got another book out on technology and intelligence, uh, and as I said at the front of the uh, uh, discussion, November seven coming up in just a week, uh, uh, we are going to have a live uh, election security. Uh, cyber uh, event uh, panel here at our DuPont Circle offices. Uh, uh, we will serve beer. Uh, so uh, uh, those of you who feel that you um, need something to drink at five o'clock in the afternoon, uh, just come on by and uh, talk election cybersecurity with us. Um, so we hope you'll be there for us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and governance.